0: October 22 is a very significant day in the history of our beginnings. Welcome to the Avenous History Podcast, episode number 53, The Protestant Civil War, Part 2. Last time, we talked about a lot of these social and demographic and economic and philosophical changes bombarding America, changes which we will summarize under the word modernism. But the two movements which most directly affected Christians were historical criticism, sometimes called higher criticism, and evolution. It was these two movements which drove us to this Protestant civil war, as Protestants broke ranks and drew battle lines over how best to handle the changing world. So, these two movements that broke Protestantism, evolution and theological liberalism, as seen in historical criticism. What's crazy is that we're still feeling the effect of these movements. It's like that super one-two punch in the movie, where you can see the character's cheeks ripple in slow motion from the blow, and then they fall backward through the air, smashing through tables and walls in super slow motion. Yeah, it's been 150 years, but so many Christians are still feeling the blow, still reacting to what happened. Anyway, since we we talked about the liberal jab last week, I guess it's time for the evolutionary hook. Now, Charles Darwin didn't invent the idea of evolution, okay? but it's his name that we associate with evolution, however justly or however unjustly. And so, he's where we will start. Like all great heretics, Darwin began as a theology student. That shouldn't be surprising because so many of the first scientists were clergy. You believed that God created the world, so by studying plants and animals, you were also studying the wonders of God. Darwin loved collecting beetles which was kind of a hobby in England at the time, and he loved mapping out the geological strata in Wales, for instance. To him, science was about gathering and organizing facts to figure out how the world works. After graduation, Darwin got an offer to journey on a ship called the Beagle. You may have heard of it. Darwin's dad thought the trip was a huge waste of time, but Darwin's uncle defended the idea on the grounds that studying science is a useful skill for a future clergyman. So, as you know, Darwin went on the journey, he went on the Beagle for a few years, and when he got back, he began to distill and refine his ideas on natural selection for the next 15 years before finally and reluctantly publishing them in 1859. One historian said, Darwin's revolution was special, an intellectual shift that had only happened maybe a half dozen times in all of human history. Whether you agree with Darwin or not, his origin of the species, in fact his larger intellectual project, is is one of the most consequential movements in history. And it really matters whose history you read. Because many Christians see Darwin as a kind of super villain, a plague sent by Satan to destroy the church. But that's how many people have written his story. Christian preachers have mocked Darwinism as if only an idiot could believe such a thing. On the other hand, many atheists have been telling a story where Christianity is the villain. Christianity has harassed and persecuted free thinkers throughout history. Poor Galileo! Christianity hates the idea of truth. They just want to preserve their own power. They don't like questions and da-da-da-da-da. So that story has been told too. And frankly, I think that these storylines are tired. They're worn out. Whatever the implications of Darwin's ideas, he never set out to do anything to Christianity. In fact, he resisted most people's calls to expand upon his ideas, to explain the ramifications of his ideas, especially as it pertains to faith. And he refused to do so. Have you ever had one of those moments where you trip over something and you fall on your face and the pain and the shock of having fallen makes you just instinctively angry? Like you just, a wave of anger goes through your body and you get up and you're looking around for someone or something to blame and you mutter something like those dumb construction workers, they built this curb too high. If it were just two inches lower, I wouldn't have tripped. I mean, come on, it's totally no one else's fault. But we're in pain. We often look for a cause. We're looking for something or someone to blame. And yeah, that's kind of what has happened here. Darwin never set out to destroy the church or minimize anyone's religion. But he did leave an elephant in everyone's room. Scientists argued about to what degree Darwin was correct regarding natural selection, while the clergy argued about what the implications of Darwinism meant, the implications of natural selection, as Darwin had proposed it, what that had meant for their religion. Darwin's own friends wrestled with his ideas. Asa Gray had no problem with natural selection, arguing that it didn't contradict Christianity at all. Darwin's wife remained a devout Christian, too. Thomas Huxley was evolution's bulldog. He thought the church would have to completely accept evolution in order to survive. At his famous debate with some bishops at Oxford, the bishops mocked Huxley for thinking his grandfather was an ape. Huxley retorted that he would rather have an ape for a grandfather than to be related to an ignorant priest who criticized scientific ideas he knew nothing about. Huxley liked to use the phrase the church scientific to refer to evolutionary scientists. Science was a new religion. Science was the first few rays of sunlight waking mankind up from the nightmare of religion. Like I said, a tired idea. As for Darwin, he only slowly became an agnostic, though he didn't see his views as some kind of new religion. He didn't see science as a religion as Huxley sometimes did. He also didn't believe that someone could be a theist and an evolutionist, so he disagreed with Asa Gray on that point, but he did defend Gray's right to believe it. In our last episode, I noted how Darwin's origin had initially to take a back seat to church debates in England over liberalism and over Catholicism it was hardly noticed. At first, those who did notice it, especially in America, dismissed Darwin with a wave of the hand. An Episcopalian journal said, well, if Darwin is right, then the Bible is, quote, an unbearable fiction and, quote, a monstrous lie, end quote. I mean, we couldn't be wrong the past 2,000 years, right? I mean, like, what are the odds of that? William Bell Riley rejected evolution with one sentence, quote, the first and most important reason for its elimination is the unquestioned fact that evolution is not science. It is a hypothesis only, a speculation, end quote. Few people recognize the significance of Darwin's work, and so dismissal is usually the first reaction. I'll never forget when Steve Ballmer, former head of Microsoft, dismissed the original iPhone. for a phone, he laughed. It's the most expensive phone in the world, and it doesn't have a physical keyboard, so business people won't want it. Balmer, perhaps a little too easily, dismissed the threat of the iPhone. He laughed at one of the greatest personal tech innovations in the 21st century. Darwin, like the iPhone, survived the dismissals, of course, and that's when evangelicals began to pay closer attention. In 1873, American evangelicals met for the first time to formally discuss evolution. Almost everyone there was confident that evolution would never survive an import to America. And yet James McCosh, president of Princeton College, stood up and said something to the effect of, why can't we be evolutionists and Christian? Echoing Asa Gray. Charles Hodge, another Princeton professor, replied that either things developed by chance, as Darwin was teaching, or by design, not both. Of course, if Huxley complained that clergy needed to stick to religious issues and leave science alone, Hodge complained that Darwin and his friends needed to leave religion alone and stick to science. Science couldn't determine whether God existed or whether he created the universe. To Hodge, science and faith were not opposed. If they were, then the science was false. Though Hodge and Huxley were on opposite sides of the debate and opposite sides of the Atlantic, they were of the same opinion that evolution was an all-or-nothing decision. Not everyone saw it that way. Before Darwin, the Princetonian Christians took scientific news in stride. They, like many Christians back then, shrugged at the view that the earth might be tens of thousands or millions of years old. B.B. Warfield, a Princeton professor who is still considered by many to be one of the greatest conservative theologians at the school in history, had no problem with God creating in millions of years. Evangelical acceptance of evolution lasted only as long as there was room in evolution for God. A. H. Strong, president of Rochester Theological Seminary, wrote, quote, We grant the principle of evolution, but we regard it as only the method of divine intelligence. End quote. James McCosh believed that the problem of evolution was that it was being preached by atheists who ignored any hand of God in all of this. And if we could only get the science of evolution into the hands of committed Christians, we would be able to establish evolution on a firm Christian basis. It's worth repeating that James McCosh was not a liberal. He was very much an evangelical. Yes, he was totally to the left of Hodge, but still right of center on the theological continuum, if we could just map him or chart him somewhere in there. McCosch was still trying to incorporate evolution into his high view of scripture. He sacrificed the literal six-day creation, yes, but he kept the rest. Princeton was yet a conservative Christian school. Liberal Christians embraced evolution without much of the stress of trying to make it fit into some biblical model. Schleiermacher, a German philosopher, had long since interpreted the kingdom of God as an ethical and social reality here and now. What matters to him is that we follow Jesus' example and learn to love like him. One liberal scholar wrote, quote, The one main fact is that somehow or other I am here. Quote. If the kingdom of God that Christians were proclaiming was primarily a matter of morality, then science had very little to say about liberal Christianity, it wasn't a threat at all. In 1877, Othniel Marsh of Yale said, quote, I need offer no argument for evolution, since to doubt evolution is to doubt science, and science is only another name for truth. End quote. Of course, the vast majority of people in the pews were not as willing to give up their ideas about creation, the age of the earth, or the inspiration of the Bible. Adventists weren't up to date on the conversation about evolution. They had their own conversations going on. But they were aware that evolution was being talked about. Like the mom boss that she is, Ellen White called evolution, quote, wholly uncalled for, end quote, which I love. This is my favorite Adventist reaction to evolution. It's almost as if scientists were naughty children screaming in a restaurant. And Ellen White is sitting there and <laughs> Staring at them like that's just uncalled for. Why do you guys got to be like that? Most memorably, however, Ellen White alluded to evolution when she warned against, quote, studying sciences of satanic origin, end quote. And she posed a great, unanswerable question Why would God, this all powerful being in the universe, choose to create via evolution? Why wouldn't he just create? In a few literal days? Why wouldn't he just speak and let things exist? Why would he choose the process of millions of years to develop life? Now, yes, Ellen White did accept that evidence had been found for an old age Earth, but this, to her, was explained by the flood. Ellen White was not a scientist, of course, and in those early days, the flood seemed to explain a lot. Other Avenists were just as vocal about their feelings of evolution. Uh, Uriah Smith reprinted an article from Thomas Carlyle, who was a popular British writer and speaker and jack-of-all-trades, and Carlyle had said that he knew the Darwins. He knew three generations of Darwins, and they were all unintelligent atheists. And that seemed to be the tone of most articles on evolution in the review, dismissal of evolution and warning. There seemed to have been this feeling, among many Christians, not just Adventists, that that scientists had come up with the facts. They didn't dispute that. They only challenged whether they were interpreting the facts correctly. They thought that perhaps a materialistic or atheistic bias was causing them to to turn the facts uh, one way or the other. And that's why McCosh and that's why Uriah Smith there quoting Carlisle are kind of hinting at the idea that they're twisting these facts. And if only we could get these facts in in firm Christian hands, If if we had devoted Christian scientists, then maybe our study of evolution would reveal how they're twisting the facts, and once the facts are laid out properly, they will lead us toward God. The whole controversy was really way outside of Adventism's area of expertise. Modernism itself was outside of Adventism, whose colleges were not in the prime position to grapple with historical criticism, who didn't have geologists on tap. So, Adventists had to rely on other people to do the heavy lifting, other people to do the research, other people to do their arguing for them. That is, until George McCready Price made a name for himself as an amateur scientist, which has since become something of an Avenist pastime. Price wrote a book attacking evolution while he was a handyman at Loma Linda Sanitarium. Price saw the geology issue as the weak point of evolution, because if if the fossil record could be explained by a catastrophic flood, then evolution would be effectively neutered. So that was the goal. Now, Price got a lot of praise for his book outside of the Adventist church. Other conservative evangelicals valued the book, including a professor at the University of Chicago. Price's name rose so high among evangelicals that by the 1920s, he was being called by his enemies, quote, the principal scientific authority of the fundamentalists, end quote. Price's articles were published in the Catholic World, in the Princeton Theological Review, and in the Sunday School Times. He was really after Kellogg, the first Adventist to achieve such wide name recognition. Predictably, however, the scientific establishment rejected Price. The president of Stanford University politely suggested that Price go out and actually get some real experience out in the field, while the editor of Science basically called Price an imposter and a liar. As I've said, many conservative Christians had no problem with the world not being created in six literal days. When Price was welcomed into the fundamentalist fold, he pushed conservative Christians to stick with the six literal days of creation. It's impossible to know just how much Price changed the course of evangelicalism, but his influence is there. Douglas Sweeney, in his book, wrote that, "...all of today's evangelicals have been touched by fundamentalism, end quote, even if we don't call evangelicals today fundamentalists. And if they were all touched by fundamentalism, that means in some way, great or small, they were probably touched by George McCready Price. Price's influence began to decline after the famous Scopes trial in 1925, where the evolutionist Clarence Darrow went up against former Secretary of State William Jennings Bryan, whom Ron Numbers calls the high priest of fundamentalism. Tennessee had recently passed a law banning the teaching of human evolution in the state. And while the defendant, Mr. Scopes, wasn't sure that he had taught evolution, he nevertheless pleaded guilty to the charge. Scopes even encouraged his students to testify against him. It was a bizarre affair where the two greatest lawyers, in Brian and Darrow, would show off against each other. And naturally, because this is America... It was broadcast on the radio for everyone to enjoy. During the trial, Darrow suggested that Brian was against all science, which is a common claim against fundamentalists. That wasn't true, said Brian. Really, said Darrow, then what scientist do you respect? Brian replied, George McCready Price. Darrow scoffed. Price wasn't a scientist, he was a pretender, everyone knows that. And Darrow eventually managed to maneuver Brian into betraying Price when he ultimately admitted that the earth was over 6,000 years old. And that's really an interesting storyline here. Fundamentalism seems to have temporarily stopped the evangelical drift toward accepting at least some of evolution's claims. That drift was happening among evangelical intellectuals before fundamentalism and it has resumed in recent decades after fundamentalism has declined. It seems like it would be a good idea, now that we are near the end of a two-part series about liberals and fundamentalists, to talk about what a fundamentalist even is. When I was about 13, one of my favorite things to do after I got off work was to dial up America Online. Oh yeah, AOL. That was the way the cool kids got on the internet in those days. And sometimes they would send you a disc with free hours for AOL, but otherwise you had to pay, I don't know what it was, like 20-something dollars a month. And when I got on AOL, I would sneak into the chat room of another denomination who I will not name and do theological battle. Don't roll your eyes at me. This is long before Twitter trolls, okay? This was cool. Okay, maybe it wasn't cool, but it's just something people did. The internet was young once. Anyway, I remember showing up in this room, and this one lady would say something like, oh, here come the fundies, by which she meant the fundamentalists, meaning moi. Now, I didn't know what a fundamentalist was at first. It didn't take me long to figure out what she meant by it. However, to her and to many people today, a fundamentalist is a Bible-thumping cave troll who takes the Bible way too literally, a reactionary, an angry Christian, someone who calls the world around them evil without really understanding it. On the news today, we talk about Christian fundamentalists or Muslim fundamentalists as people carry out terrorist attacks. The other Muslims are normal, the other Christians are normal. It's just the fundamentalists you need to watch out for. Carl Henry, an old editor of Christianity Today, wrote, quote, by some, fundamentalism is considered a summary term for theological pugnaciousness, ecumenic disruptiveness, cultural unprogressiveness, scientific obliviousness, and or anti-intellectual inexcusableness. By others, fundamentalism is equated with extreme dispensationalism, pulpit sensationalism, excessive emotionalism, social withdrawal, and body church music." Quote. Now, there certainly were ignorant reactionary, Bible-thumping fundamentalists, okay? But if you take Charles Hodge to be one of the early forerunners of the fundamentalists, then you also have to contend with the fact that many of these guys were highly educated. Of course, liberal Christians and scientists heap scorn on fundamentalists, and on some level, we've come to believe their rhetoric that fundamentalists were spiritual brutes, afraid of Darwin's strange fire. When we use fundamentalist as shorthand for Christian caveman, it prevents us from listening and learning and truly understanding what it is that they were saying. So where did the word fundamentalist come from? It was coined by a man named Curtis Lee Laws, who gave that name to some conservative group of Baptists who were insisting that Baptists should stand by the fundamentals of their faith. Laws said, quote, we suggest that those who still cling to the great fundamentals and those who mean to do battle royale for the fundamentals shall be called fundamentalists, End quote. Did he say battle royale like Fortnite and Apex? Man, these fundamentalists were way cooler than I expected. Anyway, so so if that lady from the chat room all those years ago is listening, you're wrong. You hurt me, and now I have devoted my life to studying church history just as a way of coping with the pain, just to prove to you that I'm not really a fundamentalist. Man, it feels good to get that out. We could say that fundamentalism was an especially conservative type of evangelicalism, defined by its reaction to modernism. But just for the sake of variety, I'm going to continue using evangelicalism and fundamentalism a little bit loosely Sometimes interchangeably, but just understand that not all evangelicals were staunch fundamentalists. Between 1910 and 1915, a series of 90 essays began streaming out of Chicago. The essays were the project of a Presbyterian businessman who was concerned about how liberalism was changing American Christianity. The essays were called the Fundamentals and were meant to defend traditional evangelical doctrines from the virgin birth to the existence of God. Along the way, of course, the authors also set their sights on a hit list of heresies from evolution to the Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons to liberal historical critics to socialism. Here again is where this idea of fundamentalist cavemen breaks down, because as James Orr was defending Genesis 1 from liberal attacks, He didn't defend in his essay published in the Fundamentals, he didn't defend 24-hour creation days, nor did he defend a global flood. He said it was probably a regional flood. Now, admittedly, he was a bit out of the mainstream of fundamentalism at this point because he accepted theistic evolution, but he was on the fundamentalist team. They asked him to write one, actually multiple essays in the Fundamentals. Now, of course, fundamentalism took an even more conservative turn once George McCready Price took his place and pushed harder for a more literal interpretation of Genesis 1, but it's worth noting that at one point, a theistic evolutionist was also a fundamentalist, which just complicates any kind of oversimplifying of who these people are. Now, the liberal push into American Protestantism had a strange effect. It caused fundamentalist evangelicals to withdraw from their old social and political positions, at least some of those. Liberals developed this thing we call the social gospel from their new understanding of the kingdom of God. If the kingdom of God was a moral community, moral imperative, then taking care of the poor was akin to preaching the gospel. This is how you go out and show that you are a Christian. John Harvey Kellogg, we talked about in a previous episode, essentially modeled this social gospel technique when he poured himself into helping the poor of Chicago. The liberal idea was that if we could just get people on their feet, fix social inequality, fix injustice, then the world would be a better place. It would be a place that more closely resembled the kingdom of God that we're supposed to be building. And if we preach the brotherhood of man, who would want to start a war against their brother? Adventists, you might imagine, were unimpressed. E.J. Wagner quoted a Baptist to summarize his feelings. Quote, there is a widespread conviction or sentiment that nothing more is needed for the redemption of society than a rearrangement of social conditions. Salvation will be wrought by science and sanitation. End quote. People were saying, Wagner reported, That if Jesus came today, he would be a social reformer. He would be crusading to double wages and feed the hungry. No, said Wagner, Jesus would come as he did before. Christ's kingdom is inherently a spiritual kingdom, not a moral or social kingdom. Now, Walter Rauschenbusch, a leading preacher of the social gospel, famously said, quote, religious morality is the only thing God cares about, end quote. It was this all-or-nothing liberal mentality that many fundamentalists were reacting to. They saw it as a fundamental, pun intended, redefining of the gospel. It wasn't that we should not help poor people. It was this mentality that if you're not pouring everything you have into helping the poor, then you're not a true Christian. That's what they rejected. But the effect of things like the social gospel movement was, as I said, to push fundamentalists further into the margins of society. In rejecting the social gospel, it was too easy to label them as people who didn't care about the poor. And a fundamentalist who wanted to help the poor on a large scale could easily be stabbed in the back by his own people as a closet social gospel liberal. Some historians have called this the Great Reversal. Where, in the words of one quote, all progressive social concern, whether political or private, became suspect among revivalist evangelicals and was relegated to a very minor role End quote this is another of those situations where we have come to believe the the this is another of those situations where we have come to believe the rhetoric of fundamentalism's enemies, namely that conservative evangelicals don't care about the poor or didn't care about the poor. The irony is that Before the turn of the century, they did. However much Kellogg was inspired by the social gospel, that point is debatable, he was very much in the conservative Adventist camp, and he's feeding and clothing tens of thousands of people in Chicago. Conservative evangelicals were among the first, planting schools and teaching the former slaves to read and write after the Civil War. It was only when doing such things became interpreted as social gospel, a theological idea evangelicals could not stomach, that they began to abandon the field. Now, this is an oversimplification, okay? And I'm not leaning toward the fundamentalists here because I agree with them. I only want you to understand how our views about fundamentalists have been colored by liberal critiques of them, and colored, I should add, by how we view the religious right in many countries in the Western world today. We mentioned last time how traditional Protestant churches were having a hard time reaching the working poor, and the social gospel was a way for liberals to do just that. As immigrants poured into America, liberal churches became defined by their diversity because they would be reaching out to these people, whereas conservative churches remained predominantly white. I mention all of this so you can understand how evangelicals went from being in the mainstream of American culture to feeling like they're on the fringe within just a few decades. Princeton was a conservative Christian institution, as many of the top universities were, yet evangelicals felt pushed out of the ivory tower too, though it's sometimes more like they jumped. And this antagonized anti-intellectual strains within conservative Christianity who felt betrayed by the intellectual elite in the world. All of this might have you asking, were Adventists fundamentalist? Now, trying to figure out where Adventists fit in with other Christians is always a fun exercise because you inevitably discover that we are never quite fully in one camp or another. In some ways, yes, Adventists were fundamentalists. That is, we agreed with them on certain positions. Ironic, really, since many of these fundamentalists 20 years ago were people who were trying to pass Sunday laws and whom Adventists vehemently opposed but hey, the times change. Of course, Adventists came to develop their own fundamental beliefs and found plenty of space in the review to critique fundamentalism in their day. So I think it's best to say, a little disingenuously but accurately, that Adventists are Adventist. And we'll have to leave that story here for now. I'd love to continue on about liberals and fundamentalism. But the goal in these past two episodes is only to set the stage, to provide some background so we can understand the Adventist story going forward, not to tell the whole story of evolution or Princeton or fundamentalism or Presbyterians as much as I'd love to. So we'll sum it up and just say that modernism's challenge, especially through evolution and historical criticism, was fundamentally, again, pun intended, epistemological, that is, how do we know what we know? How do you really know that Moses wrote Genesis? How do you really know that Jesus rose from the dead? How do you really know that God didn't evolve life? Or that God even exists? So the liberals and a number of conservatives who embraced evolution early reacted to this challenge by broadening their interpretation of the Bible. Okay, so maybe Genesis 1 was never meant to be a literal account of creation. Fundamentalists reread the Bible from an even more literal perspective than previous generations had. They began talking about the Bible being verbally inspired, that every word in the Bible was specifically chosen by God to be there. And of course, for that to be true, there had to be one true translation that everyone was supposed to use, which is not the NIV. Spoiler alert. So, the left went further left, the right went further right, and Adventism found itself having to make an uncomfortable choice. The Protestant world was breaking up. But the choice was made for them, really, because they just had more in common with fundamentalists than they did with liberals. At least they could talk with fundamentalists. They spoke the same language. That didn't mean there weren't problems, especially over this whole verbal inspiration thing because it got some Adventists thinking, how is the Bible inspired? How is Ellen White inspired? Modernism raised the question in the church, how do we really know what we know? And dealing with that question would lead to one of the most controversial meetings in Adventist history, the 1919 Bible in History Teachers Conference. And we'll talk about that next time. This episode of the Adventist History Podcast is sponsored by The Haystack. The Haystack is a voice for young adults in the Seventh-day Adventist Church that produces articles, music, reviews, videos, and more. To check them out, go to thehaystack.org, The Haystack, Life, Culture, Theology, and Emus. Hey, it's me again. If this episode didn't quench your desire for more Avenus History content, then go subscribe to Avenus History Extra. It's a private podcast that I do for those who support the Avenus History Project. You can get access to Avenus History Extra on the website, which is avanushistoryproject.org or by becoming a patron at patreon.com. Now, there's more variety at Adventist History Extra, in case you were wondering. I do some interviews. Sometimes I do bonus episodes. You know, I, we had a good episode here in the Adventist History Podcast, and I want to talk some more about it. Other times, I go behind the scenes at conferences I attend, like the Women in Seventh-day Adventist History Conference. What's more, just as a second announcement for you, Michael Campbell and I are leading a bus tour in October 2024. So if you want to go drive around New England a bit, see the the sights and have some fun, well, you can sign up for our bus tour newsletter, once again, at avenushistoryproject.org. And we're going to keep you up to date there about what you need to know to go and sign up for that and all of that. So just to be very, 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 very clear, we don't have a sign up for the bus tour itself